Hey, this is Garrett Wong. I played Ensign Harry Kim on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Spoiler Country. Hey, hey, people of Earth, it's time to enter the Spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on Spoilerverse.com. But... If you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us or use the voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. And welcome back to Spoiler Country. I am Kenneth Regan. That, that right there is the Mr. Horsley. And today on the show, well, it's Garrett Wong, isn't it? It is, man. And he played Instant Harry Kim on uh, Star Trek Voyager and, and on Star Trek Online as well. And uh, again, it's continuing with our Star Trek theme recently of having a bunch of cool actors from all the shows. Our goal is to get somebody from every show, yeah. and we're almost there. Nice. So we're almost there. Who do what, what? What show do we have left? Star Trek: The Original Series. Nope. I think we got Jeff. Just booked somebody from the original series. I believe it's either the original series or TNG. One of those two. Jeff, we got somebody from Enterprise coming on um, in in mid March. Right. And just booked somebody from either TNG or the original series. One of the two. But it's one of those two that we have we have left to get. But we're going to get them all. Nice. Nice. That it's sounds like Gotta collect them all. awesome. And tell us about yeah. Garrett Wong. Oh man, he is, he's, well, uh, he was on Voyager. I really enjoyed Voyager. I know people, yeah. there's a lot of hate for it when it first came on. And uh, there's been a lot of hate for it over the years. I think as a rewatch, um, this, the effects are kind of dated a little bit, but I still enjoy it. And, yeah. and Garrett played Instant Kim and he was literally like one of my favorite characters on that show. Probably my favorite character on that show was, oh, cool. was, was Garrett's character. Nice. And uh, he comes on. And he chats with Jeff, and they chat for over, well over two hours. So as tradition here, we tradition. put the two for you, make it a little easier. Um, they talk about Star Trek a lot. They talk about uh, his new show, Phoenix, coming out um, yeah. with Jeff, and uh, they have a lot of fun. Cool. Well, let's get to our tradition of listening to Garrett with his own words. Hello, Spoiler Country. Today on the show, we had the phenomenal Garrett Wong. How's it going, sir? It's going well. Thank you. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I've been a big fan of yours for a very long time. Thanks, Jeff. So as, as I do these interviews, I always do some background research on the people I'm talking to. Mm-hmm. And I, I read about you that you've been in a lot of different places. You've lived in California, Bermuda, Tennessee, yeah. Indiana. That yeah. must have given you an immense level of insight into people into the, the country itself what, what what did you learn about people in these travels of yours yeah that people all over are as different as they are there's still a lot of similarities that that tie us all together no matter what part of the country we're from you know and i think it's good when you move around a lot uh, it helps give you a little better idea of humanity as a whole you, you learn how the other half lives you know if you live in a lot of different places as opposed to just one place and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 I think if anything, it, it helped me prepare to be a better actor. Uh, because you have a better sense of people in general, or because you've been able to maybe like a morph into different cultures as you've moved? Yeah. I mean, more so that, you know, as an actor, you're always playing different roles, right? So you have to always change it up for every role that you do. And when you tackle a new role, it's not unlike me tackling a new environment, a new city that I've moved into, a new school, a new, you know, these are all things <laughs> that you learn when you're, when you move as much as I do, you end up, that ends up being your norm. And I think that helps because, you know, very few actors play one role for their entire life, right? right. So they're always moving to another character. It's just like I moved from 
one city to another. That is also, awesome. and I also read that you took part in a Taiwanese cultural exchange program at when you were 22 years old. What did you learn during this period? Yeah, yeah. This thing, this this program, it's really interesting. The government of Taiwan subsidizes this six-week program. So for six weeks, for your room, your board, all your food, your you know your tuition, everything, I think it amounted to something like. 150 bucks or something like oh, wow. that, which, is <laughs> which, you know, you can't, there's no way you could go to any country unless you plan on living and camping outdoors or something like that. Right. If you, if you <laughs> right, don't right, stay right. in a hotel, your hotel alone one night would, would be 150 if you travel somewhere <laughs> to a foreign country. Right. Right. So to say six weeks, you know, for, for this very small amount, it might've been more, it might've been like 250, but still, regardless, that's still pennies on the dollar for a six week program. Right. And yeah. so we had, you know, we had classes, we had cultural classes, language lessons, and a lot of tours. We took Took a lot of tours around the island of Taiwan, the northern part, the central part, the southern part. And essentially, this program is offered by the government of Taiwan as a way to kind of showcase Taiwan and all it has to offer in the hopes that these young mm, Chinese Americans will grow up and whatever business they start will hopefully involve you know, Taiwan in some way, shape or form, you know what I'm saying? So it's, it's, yeah. like, it's kind of their way to, to say, say like, Hey, look, this is how great we are, you know, and hopefully now that you've gotten a taste of what, what Taiwan is like, maybe you'll think of us in, in fond, you know, you'll put us in a good light when you're, when you're a person who can contribute to the world economy. <laughs> it's, well, I mean, that sounds very generous of them until yeah. you hear the $250, $250 a month. You're like, well, I don't know if anyone's coming back for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it was so, great. I had a fun time on that. And they, the other term that they called this, they called it the love boat because like the television show, the love boat, people would go onto the boat in the beginning and then they would leave hooked up with somebody else. You know, they would... <laughs> So, so I assume the two hundred fifty dollars a month was not the pitch that you like, that drew you to them. What made you want to do? It's just something that 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 Chinese parents that are living in the states send their kids to. It's just sort of a tradition, you know. And just to clarify, it was like it was either somewhere between one to two hundred dollars for the six weeks. So that's a month and a half, actually. So that's even mm. longer. But it's just a tradition. It's just something that a lot of parents do. But what what was interesting is the majority of the program were. American citizens of Chinese descent that came over, but they also had a side program, which was the international program that which were countries outside of the US. So there were Chinese French, Chinese Germans, and we didn't really interact with those guys so much, but every now and then we'd, we would bump into them. And what was so interesting was that you, <laughs> so the guys from, you know, the Spanish speaking countries, you know, hmm. their names would be like Diego Chen, you know, or it would be or 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 Guillermo Chen. It would be like a Spanish first name and then Chinese yeah. last name. And then you <laughs> then you'd have the German Chinese and it would be Gunter Chen and you know <laughs> Manfred Chen. So you you would have all these <laughs> really international representation of every country. The the last name would stay the same. It would be a common Chinese <laughs> last name, but the first name would just evolve according to <laughs> what country these students were from, which was hilarious to me. <laughs> That's wicked funny. Yeah. Now, 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 was this the first time you lived by yourself during those six weeks or were you already on your own during that time? No, I was already on my own because I had left. I started college at UCLA. I was a 16-year-old freshman at UCLA. So I'd already left home already. And the way that happened is if you're in the U.S., I think the earliest you, the old, the youngest you can be in first grade is like, five and a half, I think, something yeah. like that. Typically, you're six when you start first grade in the US. But I started, as you know, I've moved around a lot. So I was in Bermuda when I started first grade. And Bermuda is not part of the US. It's part of the, it's, it's what's called, they are in the British Commonwealth, which means they're not owned by England, but they choose to be ruled by England, however that, however that works. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> they're in the British Commonwealth. So I went to a British private school and they didn't have any rules about you have to be at least five. So my mom put me in first grade 
um, at three and a half. So I turned Holy four. And I turned four in first grade. I, my birthday's in December. So in the middle of first grade, I turned four. So when I graduated from high school, I was 16 years old. And that's when I enrolled at UCLA. And so I was already alone. You know, I'd already gone away from home at that tender age of 16. That's amazing. So every grade you were in, you were pretty much the, must have been the, the youngest, maybe even the smallest person in your yeah. classes. Cause you have been what, two years younger than yeah, everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's, that's tough, especially in America, because in America, let's face it, when you're in grade school and junior high and high school, you're kind of looked at, especially if you're a, a male, if you're a boy, yeah. you're kind of looked at according to how well you do in sports. <laughs> you know yes, what I'm saying? Indeed. Yeah. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so, that, <laughs> As a kid who was bullied for 18 years of school, yeah. I will tell you that is true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the better you are at sports, the more popular you become in school. That's kind of the, you know, the, the ratio, yeah, the working ratio. <laughs> it's not fair. You know, I don't think it's the way it should be, but unfortunately that's what that that's what happens, right? And so imagine young me coming to the US after Bermuda and now Every sport I played, you know, I played soccer when I first got here. Later, I did, I ran track and field in, in middle, middle school, excuse me, in junior high. And I played tennis in high school. Every sport that I took on, I'm competing against kids that are literally a year and a half to two years older than me that are in my grade. Mm. And that's, that's huge. When you're talking about a 14-year-old up against a 12-year-old in track and field, you know, or something yep. like that, <laughs> who's going to run faster? It's going to be probably the 14-year-old, you know? There's a, there's a wonderful book. I think it's called The Outliers, and it just talks about how if you look at in the NHL, a lot of the kids that get drafted, you know, and become professional hockey players, their birthdays are in January and February. Because they are the oldest and the the usually the the strongest the the most developed of any kid in that year that they're born mm. right so if you're a December yeah. kid you know like I was you're kind of out of luck it's kind of you've got to be you've got to be Gretzky level <laughs> of <Yeah>. hockey <laughs> in order to make it as opposed now, to all the other kids so no 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 was there sort of like honor rules of don't pick on the kid two years younger than everybody or, or was like, you know what I'm saying? It was like, there's no uh, tolerance for uh, youth. <laughs> no, I wish there was. There really wasn't. You know, oh, I, used to, no. I used to boast about it though. When I was in middle school, yeah. I would be like, oh man, I'm so much younger than all of you. And then it wasn't <laughs> so good. You know, once I started playing sports and then once everyone started dating, it's sort of like everyone looked at me as like this little kid and it was, it was very difficult. I, I can, I can, at least I can only imagine. Like I said, I, I, when I was in high school, I was like, I was bullied, but mm. I did not have the excuse of being younger than everybody else. Yeah. I was just in, not coordinated enough. Not eh, picked up. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. You survived it, right? You're here. So that's good. You made, you know, it. there's something to be said about those who are bullied. You do come out kind of stronger uh, you do. on some level. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I agree with that 100%. You know, as long as you don't, as long as you don't take it to the point where 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 you lose it, where you lose your mind, you definitely will come out stronger in the long end. I agree with you 100. So, I, I, like I said, I do a lot of background research on the people I'm interviewing, mm -hmm. and I would love some clarification on something. Okay, sure. Because I heard two different stories. I read two different stories about your decision to go into acting. Yeah. One story that I read said that it was influenced by your professor at UCLA, mm -hmm. a theater instructor. Yeah. Another version said that it was your time during the, the Taiwanese exchange program that inspired you to become an actor because of rep representation. So <sighs> which one is closer to accurate? I think probably, I mean, my decision to go, act, go into acting was, I guess it's, it started even earlier than that. I mean, I growing up, I was a huge fan of Saturday Night Live. I mm. love Saturday Night Live. And back when I was a kid, that was like John Belushi and Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd and, you know, all these guys that were there in mm. the 70s, you know, and early 80s. Yes. So late 70s, early 80s, you know, I, I, just, I just thought that, was, that would be my dream job is to be someone who performs sketch comedy, you know. So, so I really had, you know, a love for entertainment and, and, and television and film when I was a young kid. And so really the influence wasn't the Taiwanese program so much or, or the, 
the the professor at UCLA. You know, those are both important milestones in my lifetime, but they weren't the main factors of what made me decide to go into acting. When I got to college, I declared as pre-med. So I was going to be a doctor, you know, for the mm. longest time. I said, I'm going to be a medical doctor. I'm going to be, I'm going to be an anesthesiologist. I'm going to be the guy that puts you under, you know, so <laughs> I don't have to worry too much about, you know, cutting anyone open or, or dealing with yeah. all the, you know, the gore, the blood and gore, but I can definitely give you the drugs that'll knock you out. So that's, that's, you, you know, what I thought I was going to do, but once access I access to the college, good stuff, yes. <laughs> 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 what is that? An anesthesiologist is a professional drug dealer, basically. Yes. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I just, I really felt that that was my calling in life, but that was more the Asian American thing to do. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's, mm. if you look at any medical school in the country, I'd say probably 50% or more of the enrollment is probably Asian American. And I'm including East Indians in that as well. You know, so it's, yeah. it's just, it's just disproportionately Asian skewed in every medical school. So that kind of was more of a cliche decision of mine, I guess. But once I got to, to uh, UCLA, I, I, I kind of fell out of that. And I started thinking, you know, what do I, what do I need to do that I, what should I do that I'd love to do that I would love to do? Cause I remember seeing a book that said, or something that said, you know, do what you love and the money will follow was this book that I saw, you know, when I was in college <laughs> yes. as a freshman. And I started <laughs> thinking that's true. I mean, why should I pick a job? Like I could easily become an accountant or a CPA, but do I really want a number crunch, you know, for the rest of my life? Not really. I mean, what do yeah. I really love? And I thought back to hmm, Saturday Night Live. And also there used to be an, well, he's still alive, an impersonator by the name of Rich Little. Rich Little could do thousands of voices. So my whole thing was if I could do anything like Saturday Night, uh, a Saturday Night Live actor or, uh, or be an impersonator like Rich Little, then my life would be set. And so I, you know, I felt, okay, the most logical progression or the most logical direction that I should follow is probably acting, you know, because getting on Saturday Night Live or becoming a master impressionist is probably a lot more difficult than becoming a professional actor, you know? So I, I thought, mm. well, acting is probably what I should shoot for. It's a more general direction I should go in. And if I end up <clears throat> becoming, uh, you know, a Saturday Night Live cast member, then great. But if not, I can still perform and entertain people. And that's that's my true calling, my true joy, what I felt. So, you know, at UCLA, that's where I took my first acting class. And and my all the teachers there helped me definitely. But one teacher in particular, Jenny Roundtree, who was my professor during my intermediate acting class at UCLA, she's the one that kind of, you know, provided me with my first breakthrough. Because if you're thinking about, you know, becoming an actor, it's sort of an unnatural act to be an actor. Because what's what's going on? I mean, let's break it down. You've got a camera and mm -hmm. this camera is focused on usually two individuals talking. That conversation is a private conversation typically, but yet this camera is right there <laughs> in your face. And not only that, there's like 50 people all around you <laughs> watching yes. you do this. So that's a very public act for what is supposed to be a very private, you know, act of a conversation between two people. So it's not, you have to break through these barriers that you have that are built in by society and your upbringing. And, you know, you have to get past that and, and be free and be able to just be able to be in the moment is something that actors talk about all the time, you know, and being in the moment is really when you go with the flow, you're going with the flow of the script of the, your character so much so that you kind of forget what's going on around you. You know, all that stuff sort of, mm. and for the best, the best analogy I can think of for those people out there that are not actors are, you know, when you first fall in love with somebody in, in junior mm. high or whatever, and, and all you can think of and all you can see is that person and everything around yes. that person, all the distractions around you, your parents, your brothers, your sister, that all their chatter just sort of the volume is turned down. <laughs> it's just like, yes. wah, 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 wah. it gets real quiet. And the only thing that's on your mind at what you live, drink, sleep is one person. That's kind of being in the moment, you know, in a way for actors. That's the best analogy I can come up with. Now, are you naturally extroverted or are you introverted and suffer when you're on uh, camera or stage? Um, yeah, I'm a weird combination of both to be perfectly honest. I'm more introverted because of the experiences I have experienced in this country being a minority. 
if mm. that makes sense. So no, it does. Yeah. So living in living in Memphis, I was bullied like you were, but I was bullied primarily because of my race. And so when you get called out and you're being, you know, you're having racial epithets hurled at you on a daily basis. It tends to make you more introverted. <laughs> it tends to make <laughs> you want to be invisible and get away from every, everybody that, that can cause you pain and heartache. So I think naturally I am an extrovert, but because of my upbringing in arguably the most racist part of the country, the South, then I would say that kind of forced me to being an, more of an introvert in my formative years. But as I've yeah. gotten older, you know, my my true extrovert self has come out a little bit more. I tried. I tend to be the loudest Asian on the block. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that's one of the reasons you you were drawn to acting because the moments of introversion in private, you're allowed to have that kind of like a catharsis or hmm. be the person you want to be when you're in front of everybody else. This is your moment to be that person again. Yeah, I mean, maybe subconsciously. I haven't really given much thought to that, but you you do bring up an interesting point. Yeah, it's definitely possible that subconsciously that's that's what drew me to it. It's very very possible. But, you know, like I said, from a very young age, I've I've always known that entertaining people with characters is something that fuels my soul. You know, that sort of drives me. That's always been there. So, what did your parents think when you went to them and said, you know what I'm going to do for college? I'm going to acting. Were they like, fantastic? Or were they like, son of a bitch? <laughs> More the latter than the former. Oh, no. <laughs> they, anyway, I remember that phone call. I called my mom up and I said, I said, I'm not going to med school. And she's like, what? <laughs> I said, I've just decided I'm not pre-med any longer. She goes, okay, you are now going to law school? I said, nope. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. So... MBA uh, business? And I said, nope. She goes, then what? What have you decided? I said, well, I've decided I'm going into acting. My mom dropped the phone. Literally, she dropped the phone. Oh, and it shit. was just like, what? She picks it back up and she goes, okay, all right. Are you crazy? I said, no. She goes, you just, all right, then name one person. Name one Chinese person who's made it in this business in the business of entertainment in Hollywood, name one Asian person, one Chinese, not even one Chinese, one, any Asian. And I said, okay, Bruce Lee. <laughs> she didn't skip a beat. She said, he's dead. Pick another. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Changing the rules on you. Yeah. So I, I think that is going to be the title of my autobiography. He's dead. Pick another. Cause it's such a, <laughs> it's such a, it's such a, it's such a sexy title. People will be like wondering, and it's very mysterious. Like, well, what does that mean? Uh, what does that mean? He's dead. Pick another. So I think that's going to be the title of my, my oh, autobiography. God, uh, it, it, it'd be horrible. Tombstone too. He's dead. Pick another. He's dead. Pick another. Yeah. <laughs> My epitaph on the tombstone. Yes. <laughs> Here lies Garrett Wong, actor and humanitarian. He's dead. Pick another. Yeah. So, yeah, it's tough. I couldn't come up with an answer, right? So, I spent about five years arguing with my parents, just literally debating every... Because most times when, when kids go leave the roost, parents call up call them up when they're at college or, you know, when they're in their early twenties and they always ask, you know, are you doing, have you, are you getting enough food to eat? These are questions that parents ask. But once I had declared my decision to go into acting, every phone call was not, have you had enough to eat? How are you doing? Every, every phone call began with, have you given up your ridiculous notion of going into acting? Have you given oh, up this shit. crazy, you know, choice of, 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 of occupation? You know, have you decided to go to med school again? That was, Every every conversation with them for oh, five man. years. Oh my gosh, I was, I was I was literally pulling my hair out. It came down to the most absurd conversation. Was my mom called and said, "Okay, this is the plan that your uncle has drawn up for you." And I'm like, "My <laughs> uncle? Oh yeah, he wants you to go to business school, and after you get your MBA, he wants you to go work for a Fortune 500 company for a period of one to three years, and then go over and take over his company." <laughs> and, I, and I said, wow, I'm so glad that my uncle has dr drawn out my entire future for me. Thank you. And I said, no, I said, I'm not going to do that. You know, I, I'm really going to keep 
stick to my guns. And the only thing that really saved me was we, uh, for my mom's side of the family, her maiden name is Ling, L-A-N-G. There is a Ling family reunion that we've been going to for, you know, decades where every five to 10 years we would meet up. And, and so my mom's father had four brothers. So these five Ling brother, five Ling brothers or basically the grandfathers. And they all had these different families. One, one lived in Adelaide, Australia. So he brought the Australian clan of Lings to these family reunions. The other one lived in the DC area and that he was the oldest of the Ling brothers. And he had married a Scottish woman <laughs> in whatever it was, 1910, a time that, you know, Asian men, Chinese men weren't even allowed to look at any white women. Like he went off right, and married, right. <laughs> he went off and married this Scottish woman. And so that lineage would come to these family reunions. And then uh, another fa- grandfather settled in the Arizona, the desert area, and he would bring his clan. And then my own, my grandfather settled in New Jersey. He opened up a, a little tiny little hotel uh, right off of the boardwalk. This is before the casinos came in and and ruined it and he you know he he was in jersey and and he would bring his clan and so we would go to these reunions and there was a couple of aunts there my my mom's cousins basically that were really progressive and during these reunions during the talent show i would always do some type of performance of something whether it was some dance routine i'd come up with or sometimes you know some impersonations i would do for everybody or some stand up routine whatever i would do something so these very progressive two of the, these progressive aunties were the ones that kind of convinced my parents they said listen if this is really what he wants to do think about every reunion we've had think about how entertaining your son is, how, how, what all the things he's done over the years, you should support him. You should, you should let him follow his dream, you know, and if he falls flat on his face, that's going to be his own choice, his own actions that make him, you know, fail. Mm. So you should, if anything, be his parents and be supportive. And that's what turned the tide. I remember my mom was like, okay, we're going to support you on this. And this is after five years of de- debating. <laughs> and during that five-year time, literally, they had said, if you try to become an actor professionally, we will disown you. So during Jesus. that five years, all I did was take more lessons, more classes, study more. I did plays. I did play after play after play. And really, that time, that five years was awesome because it, it helped me be more prepared to be a professional actor. You know, whereas most people, when they come to Hollywood, they, they, they come from Oshkosh, Wisconsin or whatever, small town, USA, jump on the Greyhound, land in Los Angeles, no money to their name, no real acting classes, except for whatever they, whatever theater they did in high school. And that's it. And they try to make it and they're, mm. they fall flat on their face. Right. But for me, I had been taking workshops and doing all kinds of things and this preparation of hopefully one day my parents would support me in this. And they finally did, you know, they were like, yeah, we're going to do this. So what do you need from us? And I said, I said, I'll be honest. I have a lot of friends that are trying to make it into acting right now. And most of them are having a difficult time making ends meet, meaning getting enough money to pay for rent in Los Angeles, you know, and their acting class money and their photos that they have to take with their headshots, getting those done. There's a lot of fees, a lot of, a lot of income that you have to have to support the the chase of being an actor right the occupation of being an actor so it's it's a very it's a very it's heavy on investment up front and a lot of times very little return comes for, you have to keep waiting and waiting and waiting until your break comes and so i so i told my parents i said i don't want to be like some of my friends i had one friend <laughs> i couldn't believe it she worked at a, as a waiter she was a waitress at yeah. three different restaurants for the lunch shift. So she did an early lunch shift, a middle lunch shift, and a late lunch shift at three different restaurants. And Jesus. I and I said, I said to her, how do you how do you deal with this? She goes, I said, how do you go to audition? She goes, Well, usually I, I really don't audition much. I'm so tired. I'm so just exhausted from just my jobs. I don't have any energy yeah. left to do anything. And I said, Well, what's the point then? I mean, why are you even in this industry? You don't even have the energy to do it. And so that prompted me to say to my parents, I need a loan. I need a loan from you guys. I need something that's going to give me the time that I need and the focus I need to be successful, to give me a chance of success. 
So I said, I basically need room board. I need, you know, I need money to live so I can focus on acting and not focus on waiting tables or any other menial job. You know, I didn't want to work at an electronic store or whatever it was, you know, and I, and they said, well, how long? I said, I threw out the number two years. I said two years. Because I felt that they were going to say, mm, we'll give you six months, you know, and I thought that was a good starting point that I could negotiate, you know. So my mom said, okay, I'll talk to your dad. I'll, we'll get back to you in a couple of days. And she called back and she said, okay, we'll give you two years. And I thought, wow, I got it. Nice. I got room, board, everything covered for two years. I don't have to go to any restaurants. I don't have to work anywhere else. I could just focus on acting. So I went out, got a talent agent. I had both. And in, in Los Angeles, it's different from other cities. You you typically have an agent that's just film and TV. Then you have another agent that handles just commercials. So I, I had two different agencies working for me. And, you know, back in the day when I started, if you were a tw early 20s Caucasian male with a good commercial agent that handled commercials, specifically commercials, they would be going out on auditions probably anywhere between five to 10 a week, you know, oh, wow. five to 10 a week. And for me, I was getting out probably on commercials once like a month. <laughs> Something oh, like that. Yeah, it was really, yeah, the slim pickings, real slim pickings. And so the two year deal that I had with my parents, it was about the midway point. After one year, I had nothing to show for it. Because my, my thought process was, if I booked one thing, if I book anything, it doesn't have to be a part on the TV show. It can just be a commercial. If I could just book one commercial, they can see this commercial, and maybe I can extend my two-year deal to an extra six months or an extra year, make it a three-year deal, you know, <laughs> renegotiate, <laughs> show them I can do something. And at the one-year point, I was just absolutely starting to freak out. I go, oh my God, I got 12 months left on this, on this, this contract, and I'm, I'm going to be... I'm going to be out on my own after that. And so I remember getting fed up with going on commercial auditions because in Los Angeles, you have to fight traffic and traffic in Los Angeles is the worst, absolutely horrible to get to the audition. And then you got to find parking. You got to fight all these other actors for parking. You got to deal with the 15 signs that you have to read. No parking between two and two thirty on Thursday on the leap year. It's like, what is going on? And then you rush in and then all you do is literally... There's a guy running the audition with a video camera, and he's like, slate your name, your agency, turn to your right, turn to your left, show us your backside, thank you, and you're gone. <laughs> and so that's 99.9% .9 of all commercials back in the 90s was that that was how your audition was done. And so I, I was like, okay, I need to just focus on just film and TV roles, not commercials, because I'm wasting I'm wasting too much time, even though it was like once a month <laughs> to go, yeah. even go to these ridiculous, you know, commercial auditions, all the time wasted getting ready, fighting traffic, finding parking, to say, to go in to be on camera for three seconds and you're out. So I made the conscious decision that I was not going to do any more commercial auditions. And I remember I was at the gym and I got back from the gym and I played my messages in my voicemail. And there was a message that said, beep, hey, yeah, this is your commercial agent. Yeah, we got you a commercial this afternoon. It's at 3 p.m. in Santa Monica for Burger King. Call us back. <laughs> tell us you can make it. And I was <laughs> fully ready to call them and say that I was done, right, with, with yeah. the, the whole commercial thing. But I thought, oh, God, one last one. What the hell? So I went. And I'll tell you. When you think in your head that this is the last one you're going on, there isn't much pressure on your on you. You, know, you really, it's it's so crazy. But your brain or the psychology of 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 acting or auditioning is so important. Like you really have to be in the right mindset. Like if you go into an audition thinking, "Oh my God, my rent is due." Oh my God, I got to do, you know, if you go into this audition with a mindset of desperation, you will never mm. get the part. You will never get the role. It is impossible because nobody wants desperation. You know, no matter what it is, if you, if you go to a public situation and you see somebody who's attractive of that you want to ask out, desperation will not get you that date. Okay. It's the yeah. same. And it's the same when it comes to job hunting or auditioning for roles on television and film. But because of my mindset of, I'm done, this is my last audition, I showed up. I was even late by 10 minutes. I remember that. I get there late. I sit down. And in the waiting room, 
there was a young black kid next to, sitting next to me, also there for the audition. And um, we struck up a conversation and we started making each other laugh. And then we bonded and, you know, the wait was taking longer than normal. So we, we literally, we start talking about all kinds of stuff. And then we start joking about, man, we should do our own TV show. You know, we should totally just, we should write our own stuff. We don't need to, you know, why do we have to wait for auditions? We should just do our own show. And it should be like two cops, a black cop and an Asian cop. And this is before rush hour, might I add. Okay. So yeah. this is the, I, I think that I put it out in the universe and rush hour happened. So <laughs> those producers owe me something on that commission on that. But I literally, I bet this idea was sprung at this commercial audition. And I said, it's going to be really funny because like the intro to our TV show is going to be you, you're going to come out with the gun, right? And you're going to kind of aim it at the camera, kind of how like the James Bond movies start where he aims at the ca- at the camera, right? And then I'm going to jump in flying over your head with this karate kick. And I was totally playing up on the martial arts, which is what Rush Hour is. It's Jackie Chan, you know, (laughs) and and, and using his martial arts. Right. So I had already come up with this freaking idea, you know, before that Rush Hour was even a concept, a concept, you know, an idea in the minds of those producers. And I, so I'm, and I said, as I jump over you, I'm going to make this total chop socky, like sound (laughs) as I fly over your head. And so we started laughing uncontrollably and then the guy running the audition comes out and he was like you two shut up we're running an audition here and we're like oops you know we're like okay sorry and so we kind of quiet down now it's on my turn to go in and i walk in there and this time they have copy and copy means you know you have a script you have something you have to say and i remember and i'm and i remember thinking this is so odd because 99.9% of auditions are just on camera shows your right side, your left side, your backside, bye-bye, right? That's it. But this one, I had to say something and it was for Burger King and the role was for an employee. So my, my lines were, you can get a BK broiler in Denver for $2.99. That's all I had to say. So I, I said the lines into the camera. I said, all right, thanks. And I started leaving. Now, remember, the mindset of a desperate actor, when desperation is what's on their mind, that actor will finish his audition and say, oh, would you like me to do it another way? I could do it, a lot. I could do it like six or seven different ways. Did you like that? Was that good? Or I, what would you like me to do? I'll do anything. I could spin over backwards. I can, I, can, I can sit up. I can wag my tail. I mean, you act like this eager, desperate dog, you know, puppy. Mm. And I didn't do that. I sat there and I said, okay, thanks. And I started leaving. Now, what happens is in psychology human beings always want what they cannot have. I had made it, I had made it so that I was unavailable. You cannot have me. I ended that audition. I was walking out. You see what I'm saying? (laughs) And the guy goes, wait. I'm like, yeah. He goes, uh, would you like a t-shirt from our production company? I'm like, Oh God, this is weird. I go, I go, I go, sure. What size are you? I go, I'll take a size large. He's like, Oh, here you go. And so he gives me this t-shirt and I thought, God, this is really weird. I go, well, thanks a lot, man. It was nice meeting you. And I, and I walk out. And so then I get back home and I get a page from the, the commercial talent agent. And he's like, he's like, Hey, how's it going? I go, I said, good. And I'm glad that you're calling me because I'm about because I was about to call you to tell you that thank you so much for working for me for this last year. But I'm going to I'm going to end our relationship. I'm going to quit going on commercial auditions because it's just too much, too stressful, and just kind of a waste of time. So, but not that you know you're not you didn't do a good job. But thank you so much. I appreciate it. He said you might want to rethink that. I said what? You booked Burger King. I said, what? Because <laughs> no, not only did you book Burger King, they want to use you for two other commercials. So you booked oh, three commercials in one hit. I said, you're shitting me. There's, there's no way. He was like, well, way. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> He's like, congratulations. He goes, by the way, I have another audition for you. And I was like, Oh my, I was thinking, this is crazy. I typically go on one a month or one every three weeks. And now he has another one for me to go on the next day. So I go on that one. I take in the same mindset. The same, I use psychology again. I don't think about desperation. I think about, you know, my mindset is it would be in your best interest to hire me. I'm the one who you need, you know? And the thing is, you can't be cocky. You can't be a jerk about it, right? But you have to be confident. And supreme confidence is knowing that you are the right one for the job. And if they don't pick you, 
well, that's their loss, you know, and you end the meeting. You always end the meeting when you're supremely confident. So literally I used the exact same mindset and it was for Chase Manhattan Bank and bam, I booked that one. And then I got another audition two days later, two days later for uh, Kellogg's Rice Krispies treats. Same thing. Walked in there, same attitude, confident, but not cocky, not a jerk. Bam, book that. I'm like, what the heck is happening, right? And I think, <laughs> and and then the final audition was well, that week was was Big Red chewing gum, and you remember that there used to be a huge ad campaign. It was like kiss a little longer, longer with yes, Big Red. yeah. And every commercial was the same. There'd be two people that are kissing and t- kind of like ignoring the world around them, and then people around them going like, "Geez, hurry up and finish kissing," like that. So <laughs> that and uh, my audition the role that I auditioned for was not for the kissing person but the but the friends that are next to the kissing people going like Jesus hurry up and yeah. <clears throat> so I go in on that and I get a call back so I'm like hmm that's interesting usually they they decide off of one audition but now I've got to go into a second round of auditions and I get there and the guy running the auditions like well congratulations we whittled it down from 800 actors down to 60 so you guys are the final 60 so now wow. we're going to bring you in five at a time. When you walk in the room, you're going to see these three stools that are set up and uh, you're going to go ahead and sit down on whatever stool was open. And just so you know, a Phil is going to be running the audition. He's got a camera. He's going to record it. There's also a direct, they basically wired the, the camera to a monitor. There is an office screen set up so you can't see them, but all the, uh, the executives for Wrigley's are sitting there as well as the uh, Madison Avenue uh, ad agency execs. They're going to be there too. So no pressure, you know, so we're thinking, <laughs> what the hell? So we get there and, the, and Phil's there with his camera and he's like, welcome actors. Okay, so I'm going to ask each of you one question and I want you to answer in your normal voice. I don't want you to be all like commercially and hey, and super over smiley. I mean, we don't, we're not looking for that. We're looking for slice of life, real people. Okay. So just, you know, just be yourself. So they ask, and I'm sitting in the middle stool and there's two actors to my left and two to my right. So they start, you know, with the, the first actor and they ask the person, how long, you know, how's it been going, you know, in LA as an, as, as an actor? And they're like, blah, 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 blah. And the second person, their question was, what are your hobbies? And the guy's like, well, I like fishing and blah, blah. And then they come to me and they said, where are you from? And I said, oh, well, I was born in California, moved to Indiana, then to Bermuda, then to Memphis, Tennessee, and then back to California. <laughs> and so then the guy that runs the audition goes, oh, so you're a military brat, right? And because all those places I've listed actually do have bases. So <laughs> military bases. And I, and I looked at the camera and without skipping a beat and just in a perfectly straight face, I looked at him, I looked at the camera and, and the guy running the audition. I said, no, I said, not a military brat. Actually, my parents are heroin importers. And we've stayed, oh, I said, and we've stayed one step ahead of the law is what I said. <laughs> My God. But the minute I said heroin, I could feel the other four actors. They're all turning towards me, right? I could just sense in my peripheral vision, all of their heads are looking at me like, are you crazy? <laughs> I get there. And the guy running the audition, he takes his finger. And you know, when you, when you do the kill signal across your neck like that, like, yeah. you know, he does that. Like, and he's giving me this look like, oh, I'm going to. I'm going to kill you. He's so mad that I said that, right? <laughs> and when I said, I said, yeah, my parents are heroin importers. We've stayed one step ahead of the law. And I'm, I'm feeling the next craning and look at me. I'm feeling the guy doing the kill signal. And I give it about mm, a beat, beat and a half. And I break into this smile, which is basically telling the, the, the Wrigley's people, I'm joking. You know what I'm saying? Right, like right, that. Right. And then I noticed the office screen is moving. They're laughing so hard. They're put they're, they're hitting the screen in laughter because they like, you know, all day long they've been seeing, you know, young young actors and actresses come in and nobody has said anything remotely that yet you know, es- esoteric and and just well, let's just face it. That that's pushing some boundaries there. You know, you're you're right, right, right. You, are, you are at the edge of the precipice. You are at the edge of the cliff about to jump off when you talk about your her- your parents being heroin importers. <laughs> but they loved it, you know, and sure enough, I booked that role. I booked it. I booked that job and that was the longest running commercial that I had. That thing ran, oh my gosh, I I think it was probably 3 years. That 
That one single commercial alone in residual checks, I think I made close to 200 grand, you know, oh, maybe wow. a quarter of a million off of that one commercial alone. It was oh my, nuts. I mean, oh my I, God. Honestly, that is yeah. one of the most serious auditions for a bubblegum. Yeah, for a chewing gum commercial. I know. Like, for for thought, I thought you're going to say secretly it was for Star Trek, but for a commercial, (laughs) we did it down from 800. Like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, I mean, they they had plans to keep running that commercial. Like the the Burger King, for instance, that was like a a wild spot or a regional, which means it's only playing in a certain market, right? So it's, and in the world of commercials, there's different types of commercials. There's buyouts, which means they're like, okay, we can play this as much as we want. We're just going to give you this amount of money, which usually isn't that much, and just buy you out. Then there's regionals that run only in in the Midwest, you know. Then there's then there's wild spots, which are they're testing a certain market out. And then the you know the the golden chalice of commercials is the is the Class A national. A Class A national commercial is a commercial which can run in every market, whether it's the Midwest, the South, the the the, the desert area, the East Coast, all of the United States, the entire country, and it can run morning, noon, and night. So for if you think about it, Budweiser, you can't run a Budweiser commercial at 8 a.m. You see what I'm saying? They don't run them Mm. early in the day. But chewing gum, you can run that any time of the day because people chew gum in the morning, in the afternoon, and at nighttime. So that thing was running all the time. And those checks coming into the mailbox, those residual checks were amazing. You know, they were on a 13-week schedule. So the way commercials worked in in the 90s were in every 13, it's a 13-week commercial commission schedule, commission check schedule. So in the beginning of the 13 weeks, the checks were the largest. So they would come in, there would be, you know, a check for two grand, three grand, four grand, whatever. And then every check after that was less than the initial amount. So they would go from 3,000 to 2,000 to 1,000 to 700 to 600 to 500 to 400 to 300 to 200. So at the end of the 13-week schedule, they would be a few hundred dollars, right? Mm. But then that 13-week schedule would start again. So the, the next 13 weeks starts off with the several thousand dollar check and then goes down and goes down. So that kept going and going and going. And then finally, after a year, then they have to pay you a renewal fee to have the, the right to even use you uh, again, for that commercial. And at that point, I was already on Voyager. I had booked Voyager. So I was <laughs> sitting there in the trailer and then my commercial agent's like, he's like, yeah, so they want to keep using the big rag commercials. So they, they want to pay you a holding f- to use you for the next year. And so they're offering, they're offering you like 5,000 to just use your likeness to start off with. So this isn't the residual checks. These are just, this is just the right to use you for the mm. next year. And the commercial agency goes, and we think that's very generous. And I was like, nope. And they're like, what? <laughs> I said, tell them I'm on Star Trek now. They got to pay more, you know? And they were like, <laughs> and so they, so my commercial was, well, how much do you want? I said, well, t- t- ask them for 10. And so he, co- he goes, okay, I don't think this is going to work. Well, he calls me back in like less than a minute. He's like, they agreed to 10. And at that point, I, oh, wow. I at that point, I, I sit there and go, I roll my eyes and go, God dang it. I, I lowballed myself because like if they <laughs> answered that quickly, yes to 10, they would have probably paid 20 or 50, you know, at that point. Right, right, right. So, well, wait, that's he's on like, Star Trek? <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, that's, that's a hell of a game. We had this one guy for a commercial and now it's Star Trek. Yeah. We have like a, a superstar spot. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. So I, I, I could have asked for more, but you know, it was still a funny conversation that, <laughs> they did. De- they definitely <laughs> thought there was no way they were going to agree to this, you know, and and they answered so quickly. Yes, we'll pay the ten, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. So, when did you get to go back to your mother and father and give the "I told you so" speech? Well, my first speaking role on camera, other than the commercial Burger King, was was a Margaret Cho, the comedian, had a show called All American Girl on ABC. It lasted for one season, and it was about the life of an Asian you know, family uh, living in San Francisco, I think was the, was the geographical location. And so I played her, uh, I played a handsome Korean man. Number two <laughs> was my role. <laughs> and I had lines and I was basically a guy working at a, a department store that flirts with Margaret. And okay. <clears throat> so I did the role and something really cool happened. The producers were like, Hey, we like Garrett a lot. So we've decided we're going to recast the role of handsome, handsome Korean man number two with another actor. 
reshoot that and then have Garrett come in as the guest star for the first episode uh, after the pilot. And I was like, whoa, really? And so this role, I don't have to audition for it? Nope. You are Dr. Raymond Han, Han, if you will take it. And I'm like, I'll take it. And the character was an anesthesiologist. So this is, oh. an Amer- you remember, this is what I was, I was planning right, on doing right, this. Right, right. And I told my parents I was going to be going to medical school from my, ever since I was a seventh grader, all the way up until my second year in college, my plan was to be a doctor. So now I have the the gem role of Dr. Raymond Hahn in the in the first episode of All American Girl, and you know they taped in front of a live audience. So I flew my parents down, and I remember they're sitting in the audience, and the makeup people are all putting you know they're doing their last touches on me, and I like I look up, I go, Mom, Dad, look, I'm playing a doctor on TV. <laughs> <laughs> I finally became a doctor on TV or something like that. And they were, the whole audience is still laughing because everyone knows, you know, Asian son doesn't become a doctor. It becomes an actor, but now he's playing a doctor on right, television. Right. Yeah. So that was, that was the first time they saw me perform live. The first time they saw me on television was when that Burger King commercial aired. And because when I, when I got the role, I told my parents and they didn't believe me. And they were like, Really? Well, how come we haven't seen it? I said, because I just auditioned for it. I haven't even filmed it yet. I mean, how, am I, how are you going to see it yet? And for months, that thing didn't come out. And they were just, they didn't believe me. They thought I was lying the whole time. And I got a call. It's like 11.30 p.m. at night. My parents are in Vegas, right? And my dad calls me. Up until this point in this interview, most of every conversation I've had has been with my mom. And my mom is the extrovert of the two parents. She's the talkative one. She's sort of the one that wears the pants, you know, in the household. My dad's just a quiet dude, you know? So it's my dad. (laughs) And the difference between my parents is my dad has has a heavy Chinese accent, like an immigrant accent. My mom's English is really good. So like she won when she was in Taiwan growing up, she won like the English speaking award when she was in college there and all this stuff, like the best English. Mm. So, so, so my dad calls me up at 1130 at night and he's like, he's like, Oh my God, son, 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 we just saw your Burger King commercial. Oh my God. You look so good as a Burger King boy. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I look good as a Burger King boy. Okay. Cause I had the, you know, I was the employee. I had a hat on and everything. And I remember that hat being like three sizes too small. Like after I filmed the commercial, I took that hat off. I had like a, a hat indentation in my forehead for like six hours. <laughs> I couldn't even iron that thing out. I'm like, why is this not going away? So uh, my, my dad is freaking out and he's like, Oh, this is so amazing. Son, we saw it. So good. Yeah, we love it. I said, great, great, great. So you saw, did mom see it? Yeah, she saw it too. Yeah, yeah. And is she proud of me? And she's like, yeah, yeah, she's so proud. Okay, hold on, hold on. Here's your mom. So he hands the phone over. And this is a worldwide phenomenon. All mothers think that they are right 100% of the time. Okay. Yes. And when you basically prove that a mother is incorrect because remember we fought for so long about my choice of going into acting so she didn't believe that that I could make this work I could that she couldn't believe that I, I could be successful in this and this commercial was proof that I was a success or I had found some measure of success in acting <laughs> so my mom gets on the phone and she's quiet remember the talkative extroverted one she's not saying anything <laughs> and I said mom mom are you there Hello, mom. And she's like, yeah, 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 I'm here. (laughs) Did you see the commercial? Yeah, I saw it. Well, what do you think? You're proud of me finally? Yeah, I'm proud. Here's your dad. Like that. She was like, really, she was so, she was proud. It was the weirdest, weirdest thing to experience that she's experienced these, all these emotions. Like number one, my son has shown me up. He's basically proved that I was wrong. Right. So, so I'm mad that he did that, but I'm proud that he made, you know, good, you know, so she's feeling all these conflicting emotions. And so he hands the phone back to my dad and she doesn't talk to me after that. Right. But that was the first time they saw me on TV. It was the Burger King commercial that came on TV in their hotel, in their hotel room in Las Vegas. So, <laughs> now, 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 is that something you held over her? Like, when you were like, 
you know, remind her every so often? Did you just kind of quietly just let it go to give her pride? I've let it go. I don't bring it up to her in private, but they've been to Star Trek conventions where I'm on stage and I've told this story. So she gets to, re- <laughs> she gets to relive it <laughs> at the conventions. <laughs> and she'll always, awesome. Yeah. And she'll, and fans will say, did that really happen? She goes, oh no, no, no. She'll deny it. She'll like, he's just, he's just telling a story. That's all. I'm like, yeah, right. A story, <laughs> a story of the <laughs> truth. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that is great though, that, you were able to, in a, in that given time frame, prove your determination was right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, in the two year span, at the twelve month period, I booked the, uh, all the commercials, the five or six commercials, whatever it was, and then at, at the year and two months period, I think I, I got All American Girl. And at the year and a half period, I booked Star Trek, something like that. So it was bam, 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 bam. You know, would you would you have gotten? Do you think you would have been so? driven if the deadline was not hanging over? I think I would have been, yeah, I I would have been equally driven. It did take me a while to get started though. Like it took me almost a year to get up the to get to stop procrastinating and go and find a photographer to take my headshot, which is the first step. You know, you've got to have your calling card of your headshot as a, as an actor, so that they know what you look like, right? So that took me a little while to get my engines going, but once I once I once I had the yeah, and and just so so you know, this year period that I took to get a headshot was done before the two year deal. <laughs> so I had the <laughs> I had the photo I had the photos ready to go once they approved. Like yeah, okay, we'll support you being an actor. So, but but yeah, it. Was wasn't really that motivation would have been there even if 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 the two years if it wasn't if it wasn't a two year deal if it wasn't if it was an unlimited amount of time I was still would have had that motivation because I, I I'm competitive and I and I want to succeed and also my driving force at least what motivated me back then was trying to negate the experiences I had in Tennessee so hmm. being called a racial name every day for eight years living there really messed with me, messed with my head. I mean, it was, it yeah. was difficult. So my whole thing was I want to portray a non-stereotypical character on television that doesn't speak with an accent. That's not, or, you know, that's not, uh, you know, delivering Chinese food or whatever it may be. He's not a, a Japanese Yakuza mafia member or whatever. I just wanted to be somebody hmm. who spoke, you know, clear American English and um, that could be looked at as, as one of the guys, just like, just like anybody. And that was my goal. And that really proved to be, I think, the turning point for me of booking Star Trek. I think the universe smiles upon something along the lines of, of promoting peace amongst hu- all humanity, you know, or, or, or there, was some, there was some good in that motivation. Whereas mm. a lot of people who end up in Hollywood trying to make it, what drives them is fame and wealth. So if mm. you're in it for just money and, f- and to be famous for your own vanity, that's not admirable. I don't think the universe cares for that. The universe probably looks upon that and says, well, that's a really horrible thing to, to, to uh, strive for. And now you're going to be a waiter for the rest of your life. That's what those guys get, you know? And mm. for me, I think the universe or the acting gods, they smiled upon me because mm. they thought, wow, this kid wants to act to change the way people view, you know, minorities in this country, specifically Asian minorities. And I think that helped me more than anything else was that I, I had a really pure reason why I wanted to succeed as an actor. And we're back. That's right. We are back. Back in the saddle again. Well, <laughs> I hope you guys really, really enjoyed that as much as we did making it for you. And if you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you got to go check out SpoilerVerse.com because at SpoilerVerse.com, we have a plethora. Plethora is such a, it's such a snobbish word. <laughs> I like it though. <laughs> It's, it's a good word. <laughs> we have an obscene amount of oh, interviews obscene. with amazing directors and artists of all walks of life and editors and writers. And oh my God, are you a lover of comic books like we are? And then there's so many. so many amazing people from the comic book world over at spoilerverse.com. And I highly implore you to go there and check it out. 
Yeah, and while you're there, you can check out all the other podcasts on our network, like Bridges and Geekdoms and Funny Book Forensics and Haphazard Adventures and Nerds in the Crypt and so many more. Misery Point Radio. Episodes all the time. Misery Point Radio has got a ton of great stuff out there. Go check all of them out. And check out all of the reviews and previews and articles we have going up every single day for you. Every day on Swillivers.com for you to check out, to read, and to love, and to like, and to comment. We have a store link. You want to help support the site? You do it two ways. One, go to our Patreon, which is just patreon.com slash country, or go to our store link in the middle of the site there and get a t-shirt, a face mask, a hoodie, something. Look fly as hell and help support the site when you do that because we get a dollar or two. And, you know, maybe you want to talk to us. If you do, you can do it you know, obviously on all the socials, but if you go to scpod.us slash discord, you can join our public discord server and come chat with us all day long. I couldn't say it better myself, dude. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You just mouthed out a ton of information at once. And really, <laughs> I hope you guys enjoy what you're hearing because we're, we're working our butts off to bring it to you. We are. We are. I guess there's only one left thing. One left thing? Yeah. I'm going to go with it. There's only one left thing left to do. What's that? In an oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. As Cthulhu compels you to do. Open the mind. And... Even more.